This is a long reading, and it's not very familiar. <laughs> it's 1 Samuel chapter 23, and it's found on page 295. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then? if we go to Kela against the Philistines' port. Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kela, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kela, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kela. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Kela to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kela and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kela surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Kela surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kela and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kela, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness, strongholds, and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, 
Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell him he's very crafty. They tell me he's very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call the place Selah Hamalekoth. And David went up there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Should we pray for Rachel as she comes to speak to us? Father, thank you for the preparation that Rachel has done this week. and Thank you for the words that you have given her. May you help her to express them and help us to listen to them and hear your words through them. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what you just thought of that reading, but I have to say when I first read it in order to give this talk, I wasn't that impressed. It's not the favorite piece that I've ever had to preach from. However, you've heard that we're looking at leadership, and so I'm starting with a question. Who in your life has been a good leader? And could you use the word inspiring about them? So I'm going to give you a moment to think about that before I rush on. So think and maybe talk to the person next to you. Who in your life has been a good leader? The person next to you is not that scary, honestly. Okay, and so you might have been doing this if you discussed this person. But if you're going to describe these leaders who've had an influence on you, what words would you use? Perhaps it would be words 
like these. Confident, decisive, dynamic. And I wonder if your thoughts about leadership change if we think of specifically Christian leadership. And should there be any difference? Do we expect something different from our church leaders than we expect from our secular leaders? And perhaps if I had asked you to think of just any leader, rather than specifically a leader from your own life, maybe it would have been someone different who sprang to mind. Now, in my house, sport is quite important. And I don't know if you noticed, but last Sunday, there was quite a lot of sport going on. I'm not going to mention the Formula One because I don't know much about it, but I was watching the tennis. And, woo, thank you. And Sam and I double screened it, so we not only had the tennis on, we had the cricket on as well. <laughs> but, so, anyway, so, less heckling down the front, please. So, when I was thinking about leadership, this guy came to mind. Owen Morgan, he just captained England to World Cup victory. However, two months into first captaining the England team, they crashed out of the 2015 World Cup, failing to even reach the quarterfinals. Yet under his stewardship, he has guided England to now being ranked world number one. He took over a team whose morale was low, and he had to build them up. David, in our story, had an army who was worried and nervous, and David had to make them trust him. And so I believe that leadership in both secular and the Christian worlds, comes best when someone is able to encourage others and build important relationships. Now, also springing to mind for me is this guy. Now, don't worry. I can tell by the puzzled looks on your faces that you don't know who he is. He is the captain of the Crystal Palace football team. And his name is Luka Milivojevic. I won't test you on that later. That's not important. But to captain a team at sport... You don't choose to be in that place of leadership responsibility. You are chosen because the manager has seen some leadership skills in you. And if we cast our mind back two weeks to David's anointing, we can see that David didn't choose to put himself in the place of leadership. God recognized that ability in him. And now I am aware that my analogy falls down under close scrutiny. In no way am I suggesting that football managers are the same as God. You didn't hear that. So I'm just saying that good leaders aren't necessarily the ones that thrust themselves into leadership roles, but they are the ones whose talents have been recognized by others. So the one who shouts the loudest isn't necessarily the one who is best for the job. And of course... What talk about leadership would be complete without a look at politicians? Mm. Now, I'm not brave enough to debate who the best prospect for the next prime minister is, but perhaps you want to reflect on this man. <laughs> well, maybe you don't, but I'm going for it anyway. So you might not be finding him an inspiration. He's probably not someone you're trying to emulate. But could he be described as a good leader? He did manage to get enough people to vote for him that he is now the president of the United States of America. He is confident. He does know what he believes in. And he sticks doggedly to his principles. He has a strategic vision. 
Yet does he really lead? Does having power make you a leader? According to Forbes magazine, if you have power, the most productive use is not to assert dominance or control because this can erode team spirit. I think someone should be sending this article to President Trump. And each of us, I am sure, if we are asked to lead something, would have our own way of doing it. We're each unique in the ways and styles we bring to leadership. Yet there are some principles I think we can find if we follow this passage and think about how God might be calling us to lead. So, in today's passage, we have those infamous Philistines, and they were looting the threshing floor of Keilah, which would have left the people of Keilah without enough grain and would have caused major hardship and famine for them. At this point, we see David's leadership instinct kick in. He sees injustice and wants to do something about it. Protecting the people of Keilah should probably have been King Saul's job, but he was too busy plotting how to kill David. But at this point, David doesn't just jump in. He knows that the people of Keilah need saving, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he should be leading his men into battle. So what does he do first? He inquires of the Lord. And here we have our first example of specifically Christian leadership. Inquiring of God before powering on with a good idea. Not every good idea we have is going to be one that God wants us to take charge of. And then once David has heard that God thinks he should go ahead and fight the Philistines, he then has to persuade the rest of his men for no one can be a leader without a team. But his men at this are legitimately a little bit afraid. They are, after all, in hiding and trying to escape Saul. And at the moment, they're in the relative safety of the Judean hills. Once they leave that safety and go to protect Keilah, that safety might be compromised. So David inquires again, and once more receives the go-ahead from God. I don't know what form this took, but it was enough for David to be able to galvanize his team. So, a leader who tries to implement change or something challenging without the support of a team is very foolish indeed. David didn't just use his power to insist the men went with him. He inquired of God again and again and showed his team that he cared about their concerns. David is a godly leader who not only inquires of God, but he also cares about the people is that he is leading. In contrast to the godliness of David, we have our antagonist, King Saul. Rather than celebrate that one of his towns has been saved from the Philistines, he celebrates that David can be trapped. And I believe here we have an example of what happens when someone has power but doesn't know how to use it in a godly manner. For Saul, all sense of proportion is lost. Only the retention of his power as king is what matters. Depending on how well you know the David story, you may remember that Saul started wanting to kill David out of jealousy. For Saul, being leader of the people is all about power and status, rather than good relationships and listening to God. 
it's a good lesson for leaders that unlike Saul, we should hold on to our positions of power lightly, being ready to listen when God might be raising up new leaders to take our place. Despite the fact that David has been anointed to be king, his path to leadership of the whole of Israel is hard fought. Yet despite that hardship, God did not give David over to Saul. Now I would imagine that constantly having to worry about being attacked by the current king would be quite tiring. I get tired traveling at the best of times, let alone constantly moving on from place to place, never being quite sure if I am safe. Our passage continues with David back in the wilderness once again. At this point, I think I would be saying to God, anoint someone else. I don't want this job. And that is where good leaders need friends to support them. His friend Jonathan came out and found him. And those who were here last week know how important and how extraordinary this friendship was. And here once again, we see Jonathan helping David. Verse 16 says that Jonathan helped him find strength in God. Every good leader needs a friend. A friend who will support them when situations seem impossible. A friend who will offer hope and remind them that in God there is strength. Jonathan even tells David that even his father Saul knows that David will be king. Even the strongest, most faithful leaders sometimes need encouragement. It helps to have a friend who's going to remind us that God is in control. Although if you know the whole story of David and his later fall into temptation, you know that David is not perfect. But there is something for us all to learn from this passage, whether you consider yourself to be a leader or not. Point one, there is value in the wilderness. David starts and ends this passage in wild places. We might not be finding ourselves in literal, barren and wild landscapes, but I'm sure we can all relate to what Eugene Peterson refers to as circumstantial wilderness. The times where we find ourselves out of our comfort zones and into the places where the familiar is removed. God used David's time in the wilderness to shape him and hone his leadership abilities. And God can use these times for us too. It is often in these wildernesses where we have to learn to rely on God more and more, where we have to trust that God really is in control. It is in these moments where our relationship with God is able to grow, where God is able to shape us into his likeness. Two, we need to seek God in our decision-making. David asked God for direction, and he returned again to God when he was challenged. When we are challenged on our decisions and plans, it is important to return to God. He is the source of our guiding. One of the best tests of our spirituality is how we go about decision-making. Do we do things in our own strength, or do we return time and time again to God? A good leader also knows how to be led, and what better person to turn to as our leader than God. The third thing we can learn is the strength of true friendship. 
Friendship makes a vital difference in people's lives. Friends can encourage and challenge. Jonathan's friendship helped David to prosper. Jonathan was able to help strengthen David's grasp of God just at a time when he desperately needed to remember that God is his rock. And so I pray that each of us might find that sort of friend and that each of us might be that type of friend to another. May we as a church support each other in our wilderness places, remembering to look for God, trust in God, and find our strength in God. Amen. And now we're going to spend some time in quiet, and you might come to God with a question. You might, you might want to ask him, who of your friends needs support from you right now? Or you might just want to enjoy some peace and let God refresh you.